Let's turn now to Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 to 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And especially uh, these words in verse 6. A child will be born to us, or unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this prophecy was given at a terrible uh, time in the church and in the nations of Israel and Judah. And we dipped in uh, to a connected prophecy in chapter 7 earlier today, where you remember that the promise came to Ahaz the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. These prophecies are obviously connected, and it's a terrible time for Judah and Israel um, because of the Syrians, really, and that that would become soon in a few decades the Assyrian Empire with Sennacherib at its head. At this point, Um, In chapter 7, we're given uh, details of it. Um, Ephraim 
one of the sections of Israel has has joined together with the king of Syria to surround Jerusalem and attack Judah and to try and take it. And Ahaz is the king at the time. Um, It doesn't seem that Ahaz was a believer. That's what's interesting about the prophecy in chapter 7. He seems pious. He's told by Isaiah to ask God for a sign. And he says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That sounds like the right thing to do. But he did that because he didn't believe that the sign would come. And he didn't believe the word of Isaiah anyway. The attack is coming. They're surrounded. And God sends Isaiah and Isaiah's son into the middle of it to deliver a message to Ahaz saying uh, that they need not worry, that God will come if they just ask. But they've become so spiritually destitute and corrupt. I mean, you can see that in Isaiah 1, the terrible state the nation is in. God says to them, basically, the donkey knows its master, and the donkey is more wise than you. And you're a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. You have forsaken the Lord and provoked me to anger. So Ahaz hears this from Isaiah and kind of self-righteous and says, I will not test the Lord. And Isaiah says, well, um, you you weary men, you're going to weary God also. The Lord will give you the sign anyway. And in the midst of this terrible situation that you wouldn't expect, this immense promise is given. And that's what's, it confounds me constantly about God, how unpredictable his interventions in Scripture are. This is the last place that you would expect to be given a clear prophecy of the coming of Christ. When there's a king who doesn't really understand, there's a Syrian army surrounding them, and it's so far away in time that Christ will come. You, you wonder why these prophecies come when they do. And I think the reason is that he's, God is testing Ahaz and just putting some bait on a hook for him to see, and I'm saying that in a certain sense, God knows what will happen, but to see how Ahaz will respond. Um, and he's basically saying to Ahaz, after you I will raise someone up who will put this right. In the immediate future, someone will come onto the throne, maybe your son, Ahaz. Um, And it's when God's giving a prophecy like that, you see how it rises immediately. He did the same to David. He promised David that Solomon would succeed. But as he's speaking about Solomon, all of a sudden the whole thing inflates. And it becomes, the the words that are used, um, they cannot be true of Solomon. Uh, In these promises that are given temporally, Uh, to Israel and Judah. There are so many things that when the promise is given and the immediate thing is going to be fulfilled, it itself gives a hope of something far in uh, the future. And that's what's going on here. The virgin shall be with child, but in chapter 9, unto us a child will be born and a son will be given. Um. Another interesting thing, just before we look at the names that he's given here, another thing that, that, will, that will be good for us to take from this passage tonight is just to realize as well that there are large parts of these prophecies and words from God uh, that are more for us than they were for the people at the time. 
There's a, a big movement in theology that says you must always interpret everything in the context. And try and think of how the people received it at the time if you're going to understand it. But a lot of what was said wasn't understood at the time. And the truth is, if you read through Isaiah, these promises, and the other servant songs of Christ coming, you read Isaiah, and it's not an old dead book that's bound to the Syrian time. When we read it, most of it not only was fulfilled in the age of the church, but it's still to be fulfilled. You can read Isaiah, and it speaks of things that are far more in the future than what Paul speaks about in Romans, for example. Isaiah is given a window into the whole gospel age, um, Christ's ministry and its effect on the world, and the age to come, the final state. So that's what's wonderful about a prophecy like this. That's why it's good to look at it. That's why we go into it tonight, to look at Christ uh, situated in the Old Testament. We aren't bound to go back uh, to the time in which it was, and we're not confined by that, because when God gave this promise to Judah, it was to give her hope and to get her to focus on what was to come. That's what it's for. They weren't to hope for this son to be born in their generation. They were to hope that the whole prophecy would be fulfilled and it would all be bound up in this person. And then in Isaiah 53, that he would actually die for the sins of the people. And in Isaiah 61, he would preach to the people. In Isaiah 63, he would be a judge and a warrior that tramples the winepress and his garments are stained with blood. That's a picture of Christ destroying his enemies. And in the last chapter, the new heavens and the new earth. This is given to them and given to us to give us hope for the future. And we, we need that. I, I hope your hope is not in this world. I often find that my own is. It's far too rooted in now and what may happen in the next 10 years. And that shows how confined our minds are and how they shrivel up so quickly. The truth is, that Christ doesn't tell me to only focus on what's happening now. My main hope is something that's beyond death and that's permanent and that is resolved and it is full of peace and glory and life. And we are far too involved emotionally and mentally in what is immediately true of us. And that's a lesson from Isaiah here. They're all bound up in this war, and they're worried about the Syrian king. But their hope has to be beyond this war, and it has to be (coughs) in the person that is promised uh, here. So, in looking at a prophecy like this, it should enliven our, our hearts about the future, and what kind of person is described here, and what um, his government is Uh, like. It should interest us also, this passage, because it reveals Christ as a king. It reveals him as more than a Judean king. It describes him as the king, the king of all things, on whose shoulders rest the government, 
not only in verse 7 upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, but as the rest of Isaiah shows, that this goes out to the Gentiles and ends up being a government that is over the whole earth. Chapter 11, that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That should, that I shouldn't, I'm not saying it should be relevant. I'm, I'm going to tell you it is relevant to you because you are in the, the Reformed Presbyterian Church. And one of our chief doctrines is the mediatorial kingship of Christ that was so solidified three or four hundred years ago and understood. And that is the essence of why our church exists, because we believe in the kingship of Christ, not only over the church, but over every nation and the whole world. We confess that every president, king, and prince is accountable directly to Christ, not only to God as creator, but to Christ as the true king. So Christ is the king of Saudi Arabia. He is, he is the king of India. He is the king of Australia. A lot of nations say we don't have a monarchy. We have a government, but every nation, a nation is biblical, it, that system was set up by God, and every nation has, a, has its rightful king, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that, and that's what is described here and flows throughout Isaiah. And um, this promise that's intimated to Ahaz in chapter 7 and chapter 9. Um, It ought to give this people hope and then us hope because what's going to happen when Assyria invades and then later on when Judea is taken to Babylon is that the kingship is almost destroyed. And we see that prophecy of Christ in chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow from its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, and so on. So, you understand Isaiah, study Isaiah. There's a royal household. God's given them a kingdom and a nation. David and Solomon were kings. And then there's immediately a degeneration very quickly. And these men do not rule God's kingdom properly. And immediately God begins to preach through Isaiah and promise that one day there will be a great king over it. And the picture there is just what I mentioned this morning. A tree that's just chopped down and it looks like nothing good can come from it again. It's just a stump. But then a a green shoot comes up on the stump, and Isaiah tells us that's Christ. So that's what's promised here. The child that's born and the son that's given is the same person that in chapter 11 is the green shoot that comes from the stump. And the reason that he's able to govern in this wonderful way is that in chapter 11, the Spirit of the Lord is poured upon him. And it's the sevenfold spirit of the Lord. We looked at seven this morning. Here's another seven. The sevenfold spirit. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. The fullness and completeness 
of a dispensing of the Spirit upon this king so that he can rule properly in a way that a fallen man uh, cannot. And we know that this is Christ because in our passage, a child is born unto us a son is given. And when um, Isaiah writes this, I think there is a clear allusion to the first passage we read, where God promises David that the coming king, he will be, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. True in a sense of Solomon, of course, but look what happened to Solomon. It's emphatically and fully fulfilled and true in Christ. I mean, who else can really, of who else can we say that? That I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Of, of who else can really fulfill that in its fullness? Only Christ himself. And we're told in the New Testament that men, in the letter to the Hebrews, many prophets came, many great men came that God used. Even Moses, the, the epitomization of all the Old Testament prophets, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And he built the house of God, we're told. He built it. He built the Old Testament church. God used Moses to build this kingdom and this church. But the author says, well, uh, he was a servant in the house, uh, building it. And he was part of the house. He is one of the parts of the house, a believer among everyone in it. He was a servant over this house, but not so with Jesus, the author says. He is over it as a son He governs over the house. He's the steward of the house. He's in charge, not Moses. Moses is just a part of the house. Jesus is over the house as the son. And here we have the same thing in the Old Testament. I don't think we can, we can say here that it's just a child or a son. We can tell by the rest of the prophecy that Isaiah knows that there is a coming servant of the Lord and that he is not Uh, He doesn't have normal attributes, as we're just about to see. And this reference here to a son being given is not just a picture of the beautiful baby of Joseph and Mary. This is a reference to his sonship. That this person will come and he will be a son, but he's actually the son of God. He is the greatest of all sons. The one who has the image of his father and a true son, and carries out the Father's will in the earth. So, there's some background to the passage. Now, as this promise is given in it, through Isaiah's ministry at this time, and it will be a, a hope for this kingdom, it becomes the hope of the whole world, and especially our hope as the church. This is for us. This is for us. The, the, the beginning of the chapter says that it's Galilee of the Gentiles who will see this light. That's us. We're not Galilee of the Gentiles, but we're a further away group of Gentiles who have benefited from this uh, child being given and this son being set over God's kingdom. And the names that are given to him here reveal his character. They reveal something of him that open doors into the being of Christ and that should set us in awe and fill us with joy and hope 
because he is wonderful in himself. So, um, the character of the Son give us the characteristics of his reign. That's what's in this passage. It tells us what this reign of this Son will be like. And you'll see that they're neatly split into four. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's just peel away each of these phrases um, to try and understand this a bit better. He's first of all called a Wonderful Counselor. These are not necessarily together. The first word stands by itself, that his name will be called Wonderful. Now, these that doesn't mean that these will be his name. It's that whatever his name is will be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God and so on. But he is called Wonderful and Counselor because he is a wonder. And that's what the word actually means. He is a wonder Counselor. He is a wonder in himself. This is the same word that's used throughout the Old Testament of miracles. Uh, The wonders that were done in Egypt and the wonders that God did for Israel to redeem Israel. It's always connected with miracle. And in a way we can take that, that when we look at Christ as the Son who governs over all things that he himself is a miracle. He is miraculous. He is a wonder to behold. We should never, uh, we, we should never be calm and, um, and unimpressed when we consider the Son of God. Um, that's a problem today. It's often a problem in me. I wish it wasn't there. Um, but that's just our sin and our foolishness because We even looked this morning at one of the elements of what makes him wonderful, just who he is, a union of God and man united in one person, two natures in one person, infinite knowledge yet limited knowledge, infinite power yet limited by space and time, Uh, constant infinite energy yet having to sleep. All these things simultaneously united to the one person, that is a wonder. That is a wonder. He experienced death, but there's no one as alive as him. There's no one as mighty as him, but at one point in his life, there has literally never been anyone who was as weak as him. There's never been anyone with so much joy as Christ, but at at one point in his, his life, or in his death, there was never anyone who felt so much dereliction and depression. He, he is a wonder in himself. <clears throat> but here it's pointed out his ability to counsel or advise. And that's what the word means. When kings have counselors in the Old Testament, they call in their counselors. When they don't know how to make a decision or what the right decision is, and they the, the counselors and wise men come in and deliberate and they come to a good decision. But also the king himself. I mean, Solomon was a great counselor. The greatest 
in the Old Testament for that short period um, when he was blessed by God in that way. And you'll remember instances when Solomon showed unusual ability to make decisions about very perplexing uh, situations in which you couldn't untangle yourself, but uh, Solomon showed a wonderful ability uh, to make decisions and to give uh, counsel. That's what's in view here. And Christ has a supernatural ability to counsel. And that's what Judah needs in their time. But it's just an expression of a need that goes on and on and on through history. And is our great need, apart from being forgiven and put right uh, with our guilt before God, perhaps our next greatest need is to be counseled and to be advised by God because we don't know what to do. There are so many situations in life that we do not know what to do. We are perplexed, overwhelmed. There are options, and it always becomes apparent very quickly how incapable we are and our lack of knowledge to make the wise choices about our spiritual life and our lives in this world. Well, what's promised here is that the one who's given and who's become our king, he is a wonderful uh, counselor. And we should avail ourselves of that. How foolish we are, how slow we are to go to him in prayer for counsel and to wait upon him. Uh, We naturally make these choices ourselves. Uh, How wonderful it would be if we would wait and pray and be aware that there is a king over our souls and over our church that is absolutely wonderful in his counsel and who knows all things and who has the good of his people always in mind. And in the world too, the world is confused, the world is proud at the same time, the world is always making choices, nations and governments make choices, businesses and leaders make choices, political people and governors make choices, schools and all these things and families and husbands make choices for their families. This is a world that is crying out for truth and crying out for true counsel, and they don't have it. And they wouldn't seek it here because of their enmity with God, but it's there. This person is ruling in government over each nation, yet no one will seek his counsel, and he's the answer. He is wise and good and will do no one any harm or any lasting harm if they will but submit to him. And yet man doesn't have it in him to seek this counsel. So for us as believers, we ought to seek it constantly. And as we look around at the people all around us, when we interact with them, we should be aware that this is their need. You see people and their families torn apart and destroying their lives. And this is what is missing, is the gospel and the kingship of Christ as a wonderful 
uh, counselor. And how unexpected often uh, Christ's counsel is and how um, it, it exceeds and is so different to what our expectations are. And we have to be very careful with this. These words are, are often put out as n- nice, enjoyable descriptions of this king, as, as though he's um, innocuous. Is that, is that the word? As though he's not a threat and he wouldn't make us uncomfortable. But I was reading this afternoon as I thought about this Christ in Revelation giving counsel to the churches. So there's, when we think of the concept here, there's it in practice. He goes to the seven churches to give them his counsel. And he says, this is what I know. And this, this is what, how I perceive your situations in these seven churches. And we are so proud that we think we know what Christ thinks. And it should humble us when he shocks us and surprises us. He, go, he goes to the church in Sardis and he says, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. So if you'd ask them before the announcement, what does Christ think of you? They would have said, he's on our side. He thinks we're alive. He thinks things are well in Sardis. And look how different his counsel actually was. Or to the Ephesians, a very developed church, very blessed church. Paul spent two years training 12 men to set up that church. John was in that church. Timothy spent time in that church. Was there a church in the New Testament era as better set up as the one in Ephesus was? They heard Paul preach for three years in their midst. And they received the greatest, if I can say that, of the New Testament letters. The, the, the letter that has the most depth and challenges us the most and soared to the greatest heights. Then the counselor comes to them two generations later. Or is it one generation? The counselor comes. And they still have the doctrine. They still labor and sweat, as they would say, for Christ, they would say. They test false apostles and don't let them in. They analyze false doctrine and they say, that's not welcome here. And Christ goes in. And if you said to an Ephesian, what does Christ think of your church? They would say, well, we're not perfect, but there are a lot worse churches than our one. Christ doesn't think like that. He knows that, but that's not the hub of it for him. And they don't know the hub, and I don't know the hub often. Because when Christ spoke to that church... He said, it's good that you test the false apostles. It's good that you've maintained doctrine and all these things. But he tells them something shocking as a counselor. You have left your first love. Now, I don't want to say any more about the Ephesian church, but I, I just I don't want to live in concept here. He will be called wonderful counselor. Just remember how different we are from Christ. We are confused. We are sinful. We're very limited. Uh, but he comes to the church as the, the great counselor and the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And he comes in even to his own people. And if he's asked, he will give his counsel. But it's often not what we would always expect. And we just have to be very aware of that. Humble ourselves and rely on his counsel. Do you know what happens when we stop thinking we need that counsel? And what we do is we take our own counsel and analyze 
ourselves. And our entire view of ourselves and our church is based entirely on this perspective that we have, and it becomes disconnected from Christ's perspective. But he is a promised son here to Judah, that there will come a king who reigns over them, who will exceed all of these failing kings, and they will have a loving, wonderful counselor over them who will speak the truth in tenderness and love uh, to them. He's also called the mighty God. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Uh, This is remarkable. We're so used to hearing it, but you just think about it. Isaiah promises a king will come here, and he basically says that the king is equal to God, even that he is God. Now, look over at chapter 10, verse 21, to just give you another, to see that the way Isaiah writes. In chapter 10, verse 21, there's a promise of, of return uh, from captivity, and it says this, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. There's the exact same phrase. So in the next chapter, Isaiah says the people will be taken into captivity, but they will return to the mighty God, which is obviously God. But in chapter 9, he says that the son that will be given will be called mighty God. There there you have it in the Old Testament. How could Isaiah know this? And Isaiah is recording this prophecy, this word, this book, and he is being shown things. That This is often called the fifth gospel. Have you ever heard that? The fifth gospel. And it's because of the light and clarity that this man is given that it, that's inexplicable in the day in which he lived. The mighty God. What do the Jews confess? There is one true and living God. The other nations say there's a lot, but for, for us there is one God. And there is no other. And Isaiah says it later in his prophecy. I am the Lord. There is none like me. And my glory I will not give to another. And in a sense that's true. Um, The Jew says the Lord. The Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. That is the foundation stone of all Jewish theology. There is one God. There is one mighty God. But that God says to Isaiah, a son is given and he shall be called the mighty God. The name here is El Gabor. El is God. Gabor is strong. Mighty, immense. This one that will come and be a counselor to Judah and a counselor to the church in history and a counselor to us today as our our God and Savior. This one who is placed on the throne by God, he himself is mighty God. Stop thinking of Christ as a man in that sense. Stop thinking of Christ as just a link between you and the mighty God. Stop thinking of Christ and contracting him to our own expectations in the day we live. 
This is the church of Jesus Christ. And the moment we say that, we should be saying simultaneously that he is the mighty God. And that must always be remembered when we walk in here. And it must always be remembered when we bow to pray. And when we sing. And as we live our lives. We, should, we if we take this so often quoted on holiday cards and things. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Let's take this seriously. He wants to be taken seriously. Jesus Christ, as willing as he is to humble himself for 30 years. For our sake, that's not what he is. He is mighty and he is to be feared and worshipped and taken seriously. And how there are so many blots on the church and on our lives and our attitudes today. How casual we are about Jesus. And what a sin it is. Because he is God. And the angels look at him and they tremble and Satan looks at him and he trembles. The demons believe, but at least they tremble, James says. We are looking at El Gabor, the strong one. And um, in in this book, as we saw earlier in chapter 7, um, that he shall be conceived in the womb of a virgin and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's usually only seen in the sense that, that the gospel story is, is beautiful and move, moving and, and almost cute and uh, only tender. There is that picture, I'm sure you're aware as you live in the society, God with us. And it's said from pulpits, don't be afraid because God is with us. And at this time of year, atheists, people who don't come to church, people who only come to church at Christmas and Easter or whatever, um, pastors stand up and say, fear not, you have nothing to feel uncomfortable about and you have nothing to be afraid of because God is with us and that's nice. Now I'm not saying there isn't a beautiful, loving, relieving, comforting part of the fact that God can be with us. But when he's called Emmanuel in chapter 7, that's a promise of judgment to Judah. Be shattered, O you people. Give ear from far countries. Gird yourself and get ready, nations, for I am about to break you to pieces. That's what God is like. That's how God speaks. God says to the nations in chapter 8, get ready. Because you are about to be smashed. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. There you go. Ahaz has to watch because he's playing games with God. He's seeking his own glory and his his own kingdom. And he's not born again. And yet he confesses in some way that Jehovah is real. And he's playing games with God. And Isaiah says to him, I will give you the sign anyway. A virgin will conceive and one day someone's going to come and he will be called. God is with us. You can't hide from God, Ahaz. He's not, he's not going to remain far away. There's going to come a point, Ahaz, in your experience and it might be at death where God is going to be in your face. He will be with you. Now, do you know what I'm saying there? The wonderful counselor, the mighty God is a promise of his presence as a son who governs. And when we call him the mighty God, 
this son is present in his church. And we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful with Christ. Because when we say things like Emmanuel, what are we saying? In this day, many churches, and then consider our own. How do we view a truth like this when we say, well, God is with us, or God was in the service today, or wouldn't it be good if God was with us? Well, would it be? Would it be if he came in reviving power and revealed his glory and holiness to the 21st century Western world? What would it be like if God was with us? What would that be like? Because he is El Gabor. He is the one who has the sharp sword proceeding from his mouth. He is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. He is the one whose feet are like brass, as the end of the Bible shows us. So, when Christ actually comes in potent presence among a people, it will always have these two effects. Because those who are right with him and who love him and who will benefit from that nearness are blessed by that presence. But those who are not, that will be an awful presence. And just like in Egypt, when, the, when God revealed himself as a pillar of fire, it was light to Israel and it was darkness to Egypt. The presence of the one God will do two things. When Emmanuel is fulfilled and God is with us, it will reveal what uh, we are. And this uh, Gabor name is often used with a military connotation to it, that the mighty one as he comes is someone who is willing to do battle. And this is a king, obviously, He's going to be the king of Judah, and he needs to protect his people. And if, people, if nations come in to bring paganism into Israel, uh, Judah, sorry, if um, people attack Judah, if, if people come in to defile the kingdom of God, what will El Gabor do? He will rise up in his strength, as any true captain and military leader will do, and he will protect what belongs to him. That's who Jesus is. A comfort to us as well because the one we worship is mighty and the one we worship is a military leader. That should make our our faith should grab on uh, to that. Anything we think about our lives right now in our church that that we want to do in the name of Christ, we must remember that it is done with the mighty God behind it, with Christ, the eternal God, behind it, and that he is a military person too. He is not only the foot washer. He is a king. He is the king of kings. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God, and he is everlasting Father, not only is Isaiah just called him God, but now he's saying he's everlasting, or his reign will never have an end. It will just go on and on 
and on. And you'll see how God gives something to Isaiah here that perhaps Isaiah doesn't understand, but we do with the light of the New Testament, that Christ is a father over his people, and he's a father over you as a believer. And that's because he's working, at least, it's because he's working with the Father. For the Father is everlasting, so is the Son. And Christ said, I and the Father are one. You have seen me as seen the Father. And Christ brings all the benefits of the Father into our lives. And he mediates the Father's presence and brings all of the the protection and provision and discipline of the Father into our lives. And the Son here is pictured as having the heart of a father, um, someone who pities, (coughs) someone who is compassionate. That's the idea in the Old Testament immediately of a father, someone who has pity on the fatherless and the orphan and the widow, someone who has a compassionate heart and the heart of a father. So he doesn't reign as mighty warrior disconnected from compassion, but it's it's the father who is the king and warrior. So when this king looks at us, he doesn't look at us like only a military ruler does, but the military ruler is someone who considers himself to be our father. He rules in that way, in a familial way over the church. And this is just so comforting to us that Christ has the government upon his shoulders with all of his power but that it's all geared in a fatherly way for us. That he loves us. That he reigns over the world in love for us. That each event that befalls us and comes in and develops and catches us off guard is one that has already been considered by him and he's inserted it there already with the mind, a fatherly mind for our good to make us grow or to discipline us. He does that as a father too. What father will not discipline his children for their good? Because he sees if it goes unchecked that sin will develop and ugliness will take hold and the image of the devil will be formed. God doesn't allow that. We shouldn't allow it in our children. That it's done and it's painful and it's not nice and no one enjoys doing it, but it must be done because sin is real. And once it's done then the child has more freedom and more joy and happiness. And God does that to us. Christ does that to us. He reigns here as the governor and king over all that happens in our lives as a fatherly figure. He even said to the disciples, before he died and was raised from the dead and took all authority to himself, when he was in his servant position, he, he said to you, I have called you friends. And he, he spoke to, to Peter and the others in a certain way, but that there's a great change after the resurrection. And when he's at the Sea of Galilee and he's on the shore and they're in the boat and they don't recognize him, he behaves almost like their father. He says, little children, have you caught anything? That is the ageless one the one who is wonderful, the counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. He's taken his position equal to God. And now he is ruling over as a father. And though there's a way in which he's the same as these men in his body in these things, 
he has a mind and a heart that is in touch with eternity. He is wise and aged compared to them, and he calls them little children. How often I long to gather you, he said to Israel, as a mother hen gathers the chicks. There's Christ bringing the Father's love and work and salvation into our lives. But Christ now, in glory, rules over his people as the Eternal One, equal with God. But he does so to his people as a father. That's what Israel needed. A good father to sort out this mess that was in chapter 1. That's what the church always needs. It needs a good father to govern and to do things properly. And that's what you and I need. We need guidance. We need correction. We need love and compassion. And my friend, I might fail in giving it to you. You might fail in giving it to me. But let's go to Christ because he will not fail to give it. And how much the world needs this. A world that we should pity. A fatherless world that's been severed from their father. And now their father is the devil. And he advises them and he makes suggestions to them. And he only has their destruction in mind. As we look at the society writhing in its antidepressants, its debt, its fear. Just trying to survive and live some kind of life that means something. And they are orphans. They have no father. They have no king. They have the president and they have their senators. They need this king. He is wonderful. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. And he is the prince of peace. This word prince here means a captain. A captain over a people. And this captain, this son this beautiful son who has been set over them, he is the captain and prince of peace. And there's a lot more in that than it's a nice word. And he brings peace once a year during December and just a sense of a drop of peace to the world. And I understand why the world does it. This world is hard. This world is difficult. This world is is exhausting. This world doesn't offer man much, really. They drink the water of this world, and it's like salt water to them. And we need these times where we can go out of ourselves and believe in something magical. I understand why people do that at this time of year. It's in the heart of man. Eternity is in the heart of man. He wants something more than what this world gives him. And there are all these opportunities in life just to grasp onto something that's beyond us, something that's special, something that will give us rest, where we can be in our homes and be at peace and all these things. Well, it's only Christ that gives true peace. And that peace can only come where there's righteousness. And that's what the devil wouldn't tell the world. There can only be peace where there is righteousness. Anything else is a false peace. It's a peace that is constructed and folds in and breaks immediately. It must be based on righteousness. You remember that king that is mentioned in the letter to the Hebrews, the the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek. He was the king of peace and the king of righteousness. You need the two. 
Righteousness alone exalteth a nation. Righteousness alone brings true harmony, true liberty, true happiness, and true peace that our hearts so desperately want. It is the fundamental thing about man that he wants peace. And he can't get peace. This son is the prince of peace. He is the prince of shalom. That state of mind, soul, and life that brings true joy and happiness. The shalom that the Jews still preach about and want from God and search for. This is what is promised to us if we come to this son. You can't have it without that righteousness and holiness and love and an absence of sinful disorder. Wherever sin exists, there can be no peace. There can be none. And he tells us himself here, verse 7, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. And in the NASB actually says righteousness. There you go. It's the same word. That's what he brings to the world and will one day properly bring to the world. He brings moral order and he judges rightly and he does it righteously. God's law matters and morality matters. And because this isn't here in the world, wherever the church isn't basically, because that's not here, there is moral spiritual, familial, emotional, mental, and physical lack of peace and disorder and destruction. And it can't be gotten through any method of man or knowledge of man. It can't be gotten through any government or UN. It can't be gotten through possessions or financial prosperity. It can't be gotten through the American dream or the Constitution It can't be gotten from Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. There's only one place that real shalom in the history of the world was ever established. And it's wherever Jesus Christ reigns. How foolish and proud we are if we think we can create our own peace. As though we can be the source of it. We are the source of muck and dirt. Jesus Christ is the source of spiritual order and peace. So there you have it. His name will be revealed in this way as showing us his attributes and the way this son governs upon his shoulders. He has his wisdom. He has his power. He has his fatherly oversight. And he has his reign of peace. That's what he does. That's what I want and I need. But I'm not going to leave you with that. You have peace with God in your mind and soul when you are washed with the blood. You have a father and that contains a lot of peace. A Christian ought to have peace. And to be anxious for nothing 
but with prayer and thanksgiving to let their requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will guard their hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. There is a peace that we can experience at Christians as Christians. But I want to leave you with the ultimate peace. Isaiah, in, in this promise, and in chapter 11, and in the chapters as they develop right to the end of the book, he envisages something far beyond that is superior to what we can experience in this life. He describes and writes an eschatology in this book that is our only hope. Man, it's good if I can get some peace in this life, but it can't be my hope. Paul didn't say, this is my hope here. He said, it's, it's good to depart. To depart is far better, but it's needful for me to stay. This is not our hope, and if it is, we haven't fully understood the problem. He envisages a time soon and a world soon and a new heavens and a new earth soon where the sun, the the new fulfilled Solomon, the counselor, God, father and prince of peace will reign forever in a world that will only have peace and joy and the presence of God and his fatherly government. Isaiah envisaged that then, and he still hopes for it. He's in heaven, and his body's on this earth, and it's still his hope. That is the hope that the saints in glory still have. It will come in the age to come. And in chapter 11, it's It's promised to us, and we will leave this place tonight with that hope. Where the curse is pulled out, and the thorn is pulled out of the wound, and the poison is extracted. And where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea, and the root of Jesse, that's David's father, The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, the Gentiles seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And what will Christ do in that day as this governor that is my hope and ought to be our hope? What does he do? The wolf and the lamb and the leopard and the goat and the calf and the lion in this image can dwell together because the curse has been removed. And the peace is so comprehensive that in the image we can put our hand in the cobra's hole and not be bitten. And the weaned child, like the children that have recently been born in our congregation, they can play next to the hole and put their hand in the viper's den and not be hurt. There is Isaiah. That's beautiful uh, language. And Isaiah's writing and his Hebrew is far exalted among all the other writers of the Old Testament. And this man paints a picture under the Holy Spirit of a world that has no curse and no sin and no weakness and no distress. 
where the Prince of Peace will reign in righteousness. That's our hope. So this promise was given to Ahaz, but it's for us. And our only hope is that we would be in that world underneath a son who is our brother and our captain and when he will put right our minds and hearts and bodies and we will live forever in perfect righteousness, comforted, fulfilled, complete, never to feel that tension and pain of heart ever again. So at this time, as people speak about these things and the birth of someone like this, for us as Christians, let our consideration of him be scriptural. And may we look to his names to see who he is. And as this son was Israel's only hope, he is our only hope. Amen. May God bless these things to our needy uh, souls. Let's remain seated for a moment to pray, and then we'll sing uh, to his name's praise. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we ask that you would give us all of these things in our souls and help us to look at what is to come. We have no continuing city here. We cannot find such peace here. But we live by faith in the Son of God. And we long for the day when our redemption will be complete. Now your redemption is nearer than when you first believed. And we pray that you would give us a drop of that in our souls and that we would feed upon it now. And as you gave your manna to the church in the Old Testament, the food of heaven, we pray that in our lives today we would eat that manna as the food of heaven, that we would feast upon your word as food that comes from a better country. Help us to hope for that day and to fix all our hope and affections upon it. And that as we are in this world now, everything we do would be done in light of that place. For we seek the fatherland, as the New Testament tells us to. O Lord, do us good in our souls And be that counselor and that father and that God to us. And help us to see it all in the face of Christ, who is the mighty one and our savior. Go with us from this place. Never leave us to ourselves. Grant us your presence and your fellowship and be our king and make us very conscious that you are our king and that you never leave us or forsake us. Protect us, O Lord, and pour out the blessings of your covenant upon us. Even this week, guard us from the wiles of the devil. 
even in this week, and how active he is, and how diligent he is to try and interfere with your glorious reign. O Lord, protect us from him, and do us good. In Christ's great name, in the name of that Son, we pray. Amen.